Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. When I, I talked to a man called Sergei Kondrashev, who's a KGB general, about why they let Burgess and Philby work together and live together, because that shone some suspicion on Philby, he said, we didn't care. We had so many. We didn't worry about losing a few. This is Cold War Conversations. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Guy Burgess was the most important, complex and fascinating of the Cambridge spies. All brilliant young men recruited in the 1930s to betray their country to the Soviet Union. Burgess was an engaging and charming companion to many, an unappealing, utterly ruthless manipulator to others. He rose through academia, the BBC, the Foreign Office, MI5 and MI6, gaining access to thousands of highly sensitive secret documents which were passed to his Soviet handlers. In his book Stalin's Englishman, Andrew Lowney tells us how even Burgess's chaotic personal life of drunken philandering did nothing to stop his penetration and betrayal of the British intelligence service. Even when he was under suspicion, the fabled charm which had enabled his many close personal relationships with influential establishment figures, including Winston Churchill, prevented his exposure as a spy for many years. Now, I really need your help to allow me the time to continue producing and preserving these Cold War stories. A monthly donation to help keep us on the air is only about $3, £3 or €3 a month, although larger amounts are always welcome. Plus, you get the Cold War Conversations coaster as a monthly financial supporter and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. So, back to today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Andrew Lowney to our Cold War conversation. I think he certainly was the least well-known, I think, of the Cambridge Spies. I think he's the most complex and contradictory, and I think the most interesting, the one with you know, the greatest hinterland, just because of the range of, of friends that he had and the things that he did, very separate from the, from the other members of the ring. Um, who, for those who don't know, uh, are Kim Philby, Donald McLean, Anthony Blunt, and John Cancross, all educated at Cambridge in the 1930s, and all of whom went on into a public service of some sort, mainly the Foreign Office and Intelligence Services, and betrayed secrets to the Russians, really from that period from the late 30s right through until um, till the 1960s. And all five of them were spies from an ideological point of view. It wasn't, you know, they, they weren't spying from a monetary gain, were they? No, 
I mean, generally, the, the various uh, there's something called mice that that that, that explains why people spy. Um, M for money, ideology, compromise, and ego. Uh, and I think in this case, it was a mixture of ideology and ego. Uh, and they all had different elements of it. But I think what was said about uh, Burgess, and I think it applies to some of the others, was that there was a patty de bourgeoisie. They, they wanted to get back at society. This was a way of making themselves uh, feel important, uh, riding with, that, with the hares and the hounds. Um, I, I don't think they, they were very strictly ideological. What McLean, perhaps, more than the others. Certainly not blunt. Uh, they, um, you know, were... Um, uh, after all, during the Nazi Soviet pact in August 1939, they, they managed to do these intellectual somersaults and um, uh, give the impression that you know, it was fine that Russia was now on the side of, of Nazi Germany. So I think the ideology, ideology can be sometimes overplayed. Right, right. No, that's interesting. That, that's really that's really interesting. So Guy Burgess, can you just give me a little bit of detail on his family background and what his early years were like around childhood and schooling? Clive Burgess was born in 1911. Um, he was uh, sort of bang in the middle of, the, of them. They were all roughly born at that, that time. Uh, his father was a naval officer, not a very successful one, who uh, retired from the Navy in the 1920s after the First World War and, in fact, died when Burgess was uh, at school from a heart attack. Uh, Burgess always claimed that actually he had taken the, the inert body of his father off his mother because he had died making love to her. Uh, his mother was a very powerful figure. She came from a rich banking background. Uh, Burgess always sort of had money in his life because of these family trusts. And I think she really transferred her ambitions to her elder son. He had a slightly younger son who went later into advertising. Uh, and he went to, in fact, the same prep school as Lord Mountbatten, my next subject. He then went on to uh, Eton and to the Naval College at Dartmouth, where he was seen as a high flyer uh, and as a really an all-round, um, very sporty, very bright. Uh, and then from there, won a history scholarship to Cambridge. Uh, so he was a very successful, very uh, clever uh, an extremely talented um, artist and, and sportsman, as well as a very clever um, young man. So, and in some ways, that was true of all of them. They all ended up with first-class degrees and passing out top into the foreign office. That it was a sort of an elite. Yeah, um, Burgess's illustrations that you feature in the book are, are quite interesting. It's a, a side that I wasn't necessarily aware of. Yes, I mean he he was very good uh, at drawing, as you can as you as you see looking at the book, in all sorts of styles. Uh, and uh, exactly, there's this hinterland that one just doesn't expect from someone like him. Uh, but he won all sorts of drawing prizes, and he was very good at doodling. I mean, you even find cabinet papers uh, in which he sort of sat in, in sat in meetings and doodled on the side. I mean, there are lots and lots of surprises. Even I, who've spent a lot of time with him over the years, because I began researching this book in 1984 and eventually it was published in 2015 but even in the course of that time I kept discovering new things and one of the great things about taking so long over a book is I was able to interview all these contemporaries of his in the 1980s people who were only then in, the in their 70s but then I was able to benefit in 2015 from some of the files being released uh, and various people dying and things being, being able to be said. So I got the best of both worlds, really. Uh, and I hope the book is a, is, a, is a nice mixture of 
first-person testimony, but also um, these files that got released, which give you wonderful detail because they had surveillance people following both McLean and, and Burgess. So you have, and you have t- um, phone calls that were taped. You have letters which were um, copied. So you get an enormous amount of detail, which is wonderful for a biographer. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's one of the the great things about the the book is there's a lot of richness of of detail in there that does give you a lot of insight into the personality and the life of Burgess as well as members of the Cambridge Five as well. Prior to Burgess arriving at Cambridge, was there any indication of left-wing sympathies or was that really founded once he'd he'd been at Cambridge? I think Cambridge, we have to blame Cambridge for, 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 for making him a spy. He, he was certainly to the left. Um, uh, at Eton, he came under the influence of a man called Robert Burley, known as Red Robert, who I think encouraged him to, to challenge orthodoxies in the establishment uh, and to question in some ways the, the, the way he'd been brought up. He came from a, a background, public service. His grandfather had been in the army. His stepfather, who was quite an interesting figure, um, uh, had actually been the right-hand man to Lawrence of Arabia and and, uh, and been a sort of spy, a man called John Bassett. But he was a bit of an old blimp figure, and that was again part of the tension between. But there was a sort of Oedipal thing going on with with Burgess's mother and with John Bassett. It's all rather weird. But um, it's really when he got to Cambridge, and Cambridge that generation was was highly politicised. There was a sense that the older generation had let them down, the national government, that the only people who were standing up for against fascism uh, were uh, students in the Popular Front. And so communism became very attractive and it became the, the, the biggest society in Cambridge in the mid-30s. And so he became very politicized. And I think he was, there were two things that really drove him in his life. One, well, several things, but uh, one was uh, at Cambridge's academic career, which he was very successful. Uh, and the other was his political career. And his academic career suddenly crumbled. He didn't get the expected first when he graduated. He had a nervous background. And the Russians were very clever that they, they managed to sort of target him, to see that he was vulnerable, that he was looking to provide some purpose in his life. Um, and, and that's when they recruited him. Uh, it, it all was really down to, to Philby, who uh, was in the year above him at Trinity, also reading history, who uh, went to Vienna, uh, was then introduced to uh, a recruiter, and was told to go back to Cambridge and to recruit his friends. And he went back with a list of five. Uh, five. Uh, the top of the list was Donald McLean, and number five was was Burgess. Now, the interesting thing is we don't know who those numbers two, three, and four were. So whether they d- decided they didn't want to be recruited or they were themselves recruited. But I think one of the things I discovered was that we talk about the Cambridge Five, but we should probably be talking more like the Cambridge 50, that there were huge numbers of people recruited, uh, mainly at Cambridge, but also at places like Oxford and London University and Birmingham, which had a lot of uh, scientists. And the Russians tended to make a list uh, um, of people when they were recruited and number them. And we know that there was, there was only a few weeks between McLean and, and Burgess being recruited in 1935 that um, uh, there's quite a big gap in terms of the numbers. So it suggests that there were many more people recruited at that time than, than really has been let on. Of course, the only ones we know about are the ones who were discovered. Uh, and this was one of the great challenges with the research was to see if I could find other spies uh, also recruited the spirit that we just didn't know about. 
the Russians who did release a bit of material, ironically, I got more material from the Russians than I got from British or Americans. Uh, this is one of the great secrets. They will not reveal who else they recruited and who else was working for them. But uh, it was clear there were many more people than, than, than Burgess. Because there's still some files that haven't been released in the UK, aren't there, on the Cambridge Five? So do you think that that contains possibly some of those names? I think there's a lot still to be done. Uh, and you know, I would love to come back to the subject and to add to the book or even to, to write a new book. Uh, there's the whole Oxford dimension, uh, which we've, we've never really had a book about or any just, just snippets of people who, who may have worked for them. Uh, when the files, and there were several hundred files on Burgess McLean released by the uh, National Archives in, in 2015. These were the files of the Security Department at the Foreign Office and MI5. Um, it's quite clear that that was only a very small percentage. We, we have, for example, uh, you know, half an interview with Lord Ross, Rothschild, but not the second half. We had the interview with him, but not with his wife, Tess, who was quite heavily involved. Uh, we've certainly not had any of the files on Philby or Blunt or um, John Cancross or some of the more minor figures, people like Michael Strait uh, and... Um, others. So I think there's a lot more to come out. Whether they will ever come out, who knows? Uh, unfortunately, the Russians who were revealing stuff under Glasnost are now not doing so. The Americans uh, have not been released, releasing material. And I did discover one new spy, uh, a man called um, Wilfred Mann, uh, who was not actually Cambridge. He was at um, Imperial College as, um, as a scientist in London, but who was recruited and then turned and played back against the Russians, uh, which may be one of the reasons that people didn't want to, um, to, 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 to reveal him. So I think there's a lot more still to come out. Uh, the, the whole process of revealing these files is, is done on a very ad hoc basis. It's not done systematically in the way you might imagine that MI5 says, well, we'll release all the documents up to, to, I don't know, 1945, and then we'll do 46 and 47, which is sort of the way it's meant to, to operate. There's now a 20-year rule for releasing uh, public documents. Uh, they just give a little snippet here, a little snippet there. So it's very hard to pull everything together. Uh, and, of course, one of the problems with archives is it only records what was recorded. And, of course, in intelligence, a lot of stuff isn't recorded. And the stuff that is recorded isn't always true. It's what people have told them. So it's a real challenge to try and verify uh, material. And, of course, now everyone who was involved in this is, is dead. So we just, you know, pray that someone wrote a diary or wrote letters or wrote a, an unpublished autobiography or whatever that will just give us some material. And, you know, there may be some stuff out there that suddenly someone will reveal. Yeah, it's it's intriguing that, you know, the the government still or the intelligence services still feel that those files should not be released, bearing in mind the, the period that's um, that's passed since you know, that those events took place. Well, it's a great hobby horse of mine. I mean, I think, you know, there is a culture of secrecy in this country, and I think you don't really build trust in, in government and institutions unless there's transparency, which there clearly isn't. You know, it's clearly very embarrassing, um, the, the fact that these people, you know, were able to get away for so long. I mean, 
purchase was very indiscreet. I mean, he he was caught with documents. There was no there was no document security when he worked at the Foreign Office and elsewhere. Um, and policemen would stop him and 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 you know and and say, "What have you got there?" And he would show them. They say, "That's fine." Or or they would spill out and they would help them put them back in the case. Um, no one realised until this point really that the establishment people who've been to Eton and Cambridge could be spies. It wasn't just low level, you know, operators. But I think it was embarrassing for them because they were clearly these people should never have been recruited uh, by the British intelligence services. They should never have been allowed to, to go on as long as they could. And, and even after my book came out, from which I showed, for example, that the authorities knew Burgess had left on the Friday night, they they still stick by the story that um, you know nothing was known until the following Monday. The fact is that this story didn't break publicly um, for at least a week until after they fled Burgess and McLean to Russia, and that was only because of a leak from the French. So it's 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 quite clear that that you know the government is, is not and it's true these days have not been open about um, about these spies. You know I'm afraid that culture continues sadly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So Burgess is is recruited by um Arnold Deutsch who's a Soviet illegal agent in in the UK following Philby's recommendation, but then Burgess goes on to recruit Anthony Blunt and John Cancross. That's right. I mean, the, the Russians were very sophisticated. Arnold Deutsch was a Central European. He had a PhD in chemistry. Uh, he was a sort of sexologist. He had a great insight into the psychology of people. Uh, and the Russians certainly took a lot of trouble over the recruitment process. It was over a period of time people got passed on. They didn't always know initially who they were being recruited by. It was just to work for world peace. Uh, and, you know, that's perhaps why we now, you know, they, they, we managed to keep it so quiet that we just don't know who they did recruit. Burgess was, was always seen as uh, a natural recruiter himself. He had this great ability to get on with people. And, and so his job was to go out uh, and find new people. Uh, and Blunt was certainly one of them. It was his old, it was an old sort of don and lover of his. Uh, he also recruited, as you say, Ken Cross and Michael Strait, who was an American. But he was also involved in recruiting a man called Gromi Rees, who was a don at Oxford and a journalist. And of course, it was Rees that was to prove his nemesis. He was the man who basically shocked him to the authorities um, in the 1950s and was the prime source for a man called Andrew Boyle, who wrote the book which exposed Blunt in 1979. But yes, Burgess was recruited in 1935 while he was at Cambridge. He then was sent off to, um, to London. Uh, uh, and to, to carry on doing work there and to really disguise his communist background. He went to work for Conservative MP. He tried to get a job in Conservative Central Office and, and also on The Times. Uh, and then he very cleverly got a job on the BBC in the talks department. And this, of course, gave him terrific influence to, to put people on air who could be, I suppose, agents of influence, who could put um, the communist point of view. And Blunt was one of his, was one of his great finds for BBC. But also it gave him contacts with all sorts of people. And it was through one of those contacts, a man called David Footman, that he himself was recruited to work for MI6 or something called Section D. And this was to work on black propaganda. Uh, and one of the reasons that he's recruited was because of his wide range of friends, particularly uh, friends on the continent. Paris was the center of Russian activity, Russian intelligence activity during the, this period. And he had a lot of friends, often in the underground, 
political underground there. And I think the other great attractive thing about Burgess was that in some ways, because he was gay at a time when uh, homosexuality was illegal, he had to uh, be very circumspect in the way he operated. There was a sort of um, uh, cult of people, you know, who realized that they had to keep their lives secret. And this, this worked clearly on his espionage career as well as for his uh, private life. Um, and so David Footman used him as an intermediary to find out, for example, what was going on with the French cabinet, because one of his friends, a man called Edward Pfeiffer, worked for the French Prime Minister de Ladier. Um, but he also worked, uh, say, uh, for something called the Joint Broadcasting Committee, which was a secret black propaganda organization beaming propaganda into to Germany. And he really did that alongside his, his job at BBC uh, and, until the beginning of the war. And then he was brought in. He was a man full of, uh, of ideas. And he sort of came up with this idea that they should set up a, a unit to sort of go out and, and, and basically sabotage, not just to have ideas, but to, to go out and wreak havoc in occupied Europe. And this was a precursor of SOE. And so he was one of the lecturers at something called Brickenbury, where agents were, were trained and sent off into Europe. And it was Burgess who, who brought Philby into to, uh, MI6. So I think he's more important than people realize. He was the first of the spies to be recruited by the British intelligence services. And he was the man who brought in Philby, who, who was probably... Uh, one of the crucial um, members of, of the Cambridge Five, began, who, who almost rose to the top of them, who are uh, my six. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Yes, yeah, and and that's a, a really interesting piece that, that comes out there as to how good he was at networking and just get, getting on with people despite the the various descriptions of him because he doesn't come across as a a particularly charming person i mean there's there's comments about his uh neatness and his dirty fingernails and things like that it, it it's incredible how he just seems to win people over with his personality yeah he was a very dominant personality i think he could be very charming he was you know always very interesting he was flamboyant um uh I think he could be very, very bright and he could be very persuasive. He, he, he understood, I mean, talking about the ideology, he understood uh, Marxism. He could justify it to people. He could tell them how it related to their lives. Yeah, he, he, he was very persuasive. I think the other thing is we, we always get this picture of him, you know, falling out of nightclubs and being drunk and disorderly and, 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 and um, you know, the stains on his clothes. But actually during the day as a, as a civil servant, I mean, first of all, the BBC, and then working in the Foreign Office, in the News Department, and then the Far East Department. You know, there were never any complaints about him there. He, you know, he was immaculately dressed. People said they didn't realize he drank, or he was a communist, or he was gay. And he was very good at, in some ways, hiding. The, 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 he was a chameleon who adapted to his surroundings, but also hiding, um, you know, his, his other life. And this, I think, goes back to school days, this ability to... to um, 
present himself as as people wanted him to to appear. Um, but yeah, he was extraordinary how he persuaded people to do things. Um, you know, often it was not the nicest things. He, when he fled, they found a violin case filled with love letters, and the, the, the authorities assumed this was kept for sentimental reasons. They were they were kept really for blackmail purposes. He would lend out his flat to um, to people for assignations. He used that as a as pressure to put on them. So you know, he 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 was very um, devious at the way he, he operated. But, but very effective. Uh, I think far more effective than people have realised. Right. So in 1940, Section D is absorbed into uh, the SOE, the Special Operations Executive. So Burgess is out of a job and he ends up back at the BBC and he's still freelancing for MI5 and MI6. Yes. I mean, he, he, he makes, I think, great use of his time at BBC. He runs a program called The Week in Westminster, which is, I suppose, a bit like sort of Newsnight. Um, so he had all these political contacts. And through one of these political contacts, he, uh, having got a job in the news department of the Foreign Office, he was recruited as an effect, a special advisor for this man called Hector McNeil, who at the end of the war is uh, made a, the, the number two in the Foreign Office to, to Bevan and indeed in charge of the intelligence services. So the Russians can't believe their luck. They suddenly have a spy right at the heart of the Foreign Office working in the private office of the man running the intelligence services. Hector McNeil is, is, is a rather lazy man. He prefers to go to nightclubs in the evening. And Burgess, um, who's a bachelor, says, don't worry, I'll work late. You know, I'll, um, I'll, take in fa- I'll even take some files home with me and work on them. And that's what he does. He takes back hundreds of files and gets them photographed and brings them back the next morning. Uh, and in this period, he literally uh, scoops up hundreds of files to the extent that the Russians... Uh, at the four power conferences at the end of the war, and this is the, you know, the shaping of, of Europe and the, you know, the UN, all these things, actually know the British negotiating position before the, the um, British negotiators themselves know it. So he was absolutely pivotal at this point, and that was just through the connections he had made at the BBC. But yes, he's, he's very good at working his way in, making himself... Um, Invaluable. He was extremely good. He didn't shape policy in the Foreign Office, but he, he was certainly very good at interpreting it and 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 putting a spin on it. Yeah, yeah. Because you you mentioned in the book because this information is so good, there's almost a, a fear within the 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 Soviet intelligence services that they're being fed false information because it just seems too good to be true. Yes, well, this is one of the ironies of the whole thing, that, that, that um, between 1942 and 1944, the Russians get suspicious because they can't believe that he can be producing such wonderful material. Indeed, that's true of all of them. Um, and they say, you know, they know that this double-cross system, that, that spies are being turned and paid back in Nazi Europe. Uh, and they say to them, you know, uh, assume that they must be being played back themselves. Uh, and they also um, find it odd that the British, when, when, when the spies say, no, we're not spying on Russia, because the Russians would expect the British to be spying on their ally. So there is this period, ironically, where, where Burgess is bringing out all this material, and it's not even being looked at because it's, it's seen to be tainted. So, I mean, he was wasting his time. And, and indeed, one of the things that was found in the 1990s when the Russians did reveal some material is that some of the stuff had never found its way to Stalin, never been translated or anything. Um, but I think by 44, they realized how, what a prime um, 
group of agencies were, and, and they were taken seriously, and they were paid a bit of money just as a sort of thank you rather than thing else. None of them did it for financial return. They did it because they believed this was a way of of ensuring, I think, world peace, and they felt the future lay, you know, lay with the Soviet Union. Yeah. So Burgess gets a plum posting to uh, Washington, and uh, in in Washington, that that's where Philby's based as well at this point. Uh, at the end of 1949, in fact, Burgess has almost sat from the Foreign Office. He, he's, he is beginning to crack up now. Um, they're finding, you know, defectors are coming forward. They're saying there's a spy in the Foreign Office who went to Eton. Now, since most people at the Foreign Office at that time have been to Eton, that doesn't really narrow it down much. <laughs> but there was a, a sense that the, the Russian code traffic was being broken, and it was only a matter of time before they were caught. There was even a, a, a spy called Volkov that uh, defected in Turkey, and Philby went across and basically made sure that he was disposed of. So they were all beginning to drink uh, quite heavily after the war, uh, Burgess more than most. He was taking drugs. Uh, and on a holiday in Tangier and Gibraltar, he, he went a bit wild and, and named the names of the, the head of the MI5 and MI6 office there. Uh, and he was disciplined and brought back. And, and literally by one vote, they, he was told that he would be given one more chance. And what they did was they sent him to probably the most important embassy at the time, um, the, the, the British Embassy in Washington. They thought that that would be fine because Philby was there and could keep an eye on him, that it was a big embassy and he'd get lost, uh, and they needed a Far East expert. He was, he was, he'd made himself the expert on Chinese communism. But in fact, this was a disaster because this was the time of McCarthy. Uh, uh, Burgess hated his time there. Uh, he realized his days were numbered. And, um, uh, uh, he 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 was sat from the Middle Eastern Department and the Forest Department where he'd been sent, and eventually he just spent his days in bars, um, talking to journalists and ostensibly to to pick up public opinion. Uh, and he didn't last very long. He went out in August 1950, and in February 1951 he was caught speeding in Virginia three times in the same day, uh, and that really was uh, the final straw. It was an opportunity for the um, uh, the ambassador to send him home and to, to, to sack him. Um, I mean, the extraordinary thing is that the Russians, in a sense, let him go there and let him be connected with Philby because, of course, any any uh, uh, suspicion of Burgess would, would reflect on Philby. Burgess was actually living in Philby's house in Washington. Uh, and indeed, they were both having an affair with, with Philby's secretary, a woman called Esther Whit Whitfield. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. But when I, I talked to a man called Sergei Kondrashev, who's a KGB general, about why they, they uh, in a sense, let Burgess and Philby uh, work together and live together, because that shone some suspicion on Philby, he said, we didn't care. We had so many. We didn't worry about losing a few. <laughs> Well, wow. it, it does seem incredible that they post him to, to Washington after such a catalogue of misbehaviour and disciplinary issues. But as, as you said, they obviously thought that he, you know, he, he'd be okay there. But Well, I think there was a strong sense of loyalty. There was a, a strong sense among the British that they wouldn't be like McCarthy, that they, they um, you know, would not have this sort of witch hunt. Uh, also, they were very tolerant. They, the, 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 um, 
there had been suggestions that, you know, for example, ambassadors should report on their staff and uh, and um, they saw themselves as, as a big family, a slightly eccentric family. I want to highlight our friends at the Cold War channel on YouTube. I've been watching their quality videos for some time and I highly recommend them. The videos are presented in an easily digestible format and cover some fascinating and sometimes little-known Cold War subjects. From the Kishtim disaster, the biggest nuclear disaster before Chernobyl, to the anti-Soviet guerrilla war in the Baltics, the episodes on Cold War TV provide a fantastic insight into areas of the Cold War not covered elsewhere. Just search for Cold War TV on YouTube. And now, back to our episode. Uh, there's a story of Burgess at one of these four-part conferences coming down at breakfast uh, wearing lipstick um, and someone was thinking that's a bit odd and saying for me to, to, to one of the ambassadors. He said, well, we tolerate eccentricity. Uh, and that's, I think, how he was able to get away with it. And I think also, as, as I said before, until this stage, nobody being to Eton had ever been a spy before or at least been caught. Uh, and so this idea that someone from that background, you know, who could 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 betray their country was just just anathema. Uh, and that, I think, was the great shock when, when Burgess and McLean fled in 1951, that people from the establishment, people like us, were, were not always people like us. Um, and I think, you know, apart from the shock of the of the, of the, the secrets that were taken and McLean had access to uh, atomic bomb secrets, it was a sense of um, uh, betrayal of the establishment. Indeed, that, that phrase, the establishment, was coined at this time in an editorial. So that there were lots and lots of consequences of this whole episode. It's why it's sort of interesting in terms of society and culture as much as it's just a, a spy story. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's sort of um, one of our own would never do anything like that. It's just not cricket. It's sort of that that sort of uh, viewpoint then. So Burgess returns to the UK, and at this point, Donald McLean, another member of the Cambridge Five, realises that he is going to have to defect because he's he knows he's he's under suspicion. But Burgess... He's not necessarily under suspicion at, at this point, or is he? No, he's not. This is one of the, again, the extraordinary ironies, which just brings back that chilling comment from Kondrashev, that, you know, by uh, Burgess fleeing with McLean, it draws attention to Burgess, and there'd be no suspicion against Burgess. Uh, I mean, what had happened was that uh, McLean had been in Washington during the war. Uh, they, there were some um, uh, codes that were broken, revealing that the spy had been in Washington, his wife had had a baby in New York, and that identified uh, McLean. Uh, and again, one of the ironies is the first person that the, the Americans told, the first British person, was Philby. So Philby was able to, to tip off McLean, but no one quite knew uh, how to, to reach McLean. Uh, and so the opportunity of Burgess going back to Britain to see his old mate McLean, uh, in fact, McLean at this point was head of the American department, so he was, he was going to see him professionally as well, was, it was an opportunity that was too good to be missed. M McLean is often associated with Burgess, you know, like Marks and Spencer, but actually their careers were very different. Uh, after having their love affair at Cambridge, uh, McLean had joined the Foreign Office, he'd been boasted to Paris, uh, and then... Um, 
to Cairo, where he had a nervous breakdown. Uh, and instead of being sacked, he was brought back and um, made head of the American department, which they thought would be a cushy number. So Burgess goes back in the spring of 51. Uh, they have their meeting. He's able to tip off McLean that the Russians have rumbled him. Uh, they've identified this, this spy called Homer, uh, and they put together their exfiltration plan, uh, which is a, is a bizarre one. That at that time, you could um, get a a boat from Southampton, which sort of cruised in the channel and went and did, you uh, went sort of for the weekend to Sao Marlo and various places, and you could go shopping. Uh, and so they went on this boat. They literally caught it one Friday night late, literally the, the weekend, just a few days before McLean was due to be interviewed, which suggests that there was some inside tip. Uh, and um, they went across and literally the next morning got off at St. Marlo and disappeared. But that, uh, of course, drew attention to to Burgess, um, who, apart from being seen to be dissolute and not always very good at his work and rather lazy, um, there'd be no suspicion that he was a spy at all. So that was one of the great shocks, another great shock, uh, when they discovered that. Yeah, and then obviously that threw light on Philby as well. And um, I think Macmillan has to stand up in Parliament and say that he's not the, um, the third man. I mean, I think it's very clear, looking at the files that were released in 2015, that Philby was rumbled very quickly. And there was a bit of a turf war because MI5 had rumbled him, but MI6, uh, where he worked and they saw him as a colleague, didn't believe that that was possible. And so they, uh, and of course, it always is a problem with spies to get the evidence to bring an action in court. And Macmillan didn't want any more spy scandals. Uh, you know, he's famously said that when my gamekeeper kills a fox, I wanted to bury it in the garden, not bring it into the front hall. <laughs> and that's what they did. They tried to shut the thing down. Uh, there was a white paper on, on the disappearance. Uh, which was called the whitewash paper because it was so um, inaccurate. Uh, and an MP had named Philby in the House, uh, which, of course, got Philby off the hook because then there was a press conference and Philby was able to deny it. Uh, and it was very hard then, therefore, to do anything more. But he was uh, he was sort of sat from MI6. He was used as a freelancer after that. Uh, and... Um, it was only, you know, he was working as a freelancer in Beirut when he fled himself some eight years later in 1963. But even Cancross was also under suspicion at this point. Uh, he was caught um, throwing away sort of material into, into a bin in a park. But again, they didn't have the evidence to bring a conviction. They decided that they would follow them to see if they led to other people. Uh, and the last thing anyone wanted was, wanted was a scandal. I mean, the irony is that none of the Cambridge Five were ever prosecuted. Um, you know, three of them escaped, and the other two were, were given immunity, John Cairncross and, and, and Blunt. They all hoped that this problem would go away. Indeed, I think that Philby and Burgess and McLean were, in effect, allowed to go. Because uh, Burgess, when he but McLean left in, in May 1951, they, 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 they were reported that evening to MI5 as being on this boat. They could easily have picked them up the next morning. Uh, and Philby it was known. He was interviewed in, in Beirut in 63. He went. Um, and he knew that they were on to him. And he had no proper surveillance or, or anything. He was just allowed to go. Um, and that's what they wanted them to do. Yeah. It does make you really wonder what other names are in those uh, files that haven't that haven't been released based on uh, what what you've just said there. So 
Burgess and McLean, they flee to France and via, via various methods, they get to the uh, Soviet Union, but they're not revealed in the Soviet Union for some time, are they? No, they, they are sent off. There's a worry that the Americans will come after them. The, the Russians actually don't make anything of the propaganda, which they could have done. And they're sent to a place on the Volga, um, which is a sort of um, closed city. And there they, they basically are left to, to sort of vegetate. And it's only with the death of Stalin in 1953 that they're brought to Moscow, uh, given flats in um, big apartment blocks where lots of, of Russian officials live, uh, and, and given jobs. Ostensibly, uh, Burgess is working for a publishing house introducing foreign literature into Russia. Uh, but in fact, he's working as a black propaganda expert. Uh, he knows the personalities um, and the culture of the Foreign Office, so he's able, for example, to produce forgeries. He's able to interpret what's going on. Uh, he's presumably given, given details about some of these people who he's known since his days in the BBC uh, for blackmail purposes or whatever. So he's, he's used very effectively in that period from... Um, well, 53 when he gets to Moscow through to his death 10 years later. We, we get a very good picture, I think, of, of him um, drinking himself to death in the Alan Bennett play in Englishman Abroad, which is very accurate and is based on an episode when Coral Brown and Michael Redgrave, Michael Redgrave had been a friend of his at Cambridge, come to perform in, in Moscow and Burgess um, basically sees them. Uh, and entertains them and um, sends them off to, to, to buy various bits of clothing for him in, in German Street. And, and I discovered that all those stories are absolutely true. Uh, I have a story of a, a journalist who came from quite a modest background and was sent to buy Aldertonian ties in German Street and the very supercilious um, uh, assistant there saying to him when he said that they're not for him, that's what they all say, sir. Um, so it's it's a very good picture because there is a sort of tragedy about this. You know, Burgess has given up his whole life for this cause, and I think he realizes how awful Russia is when he gets there. You know, he's never entirely trusted by the Russians. He's got a uh, he's given a boyfriend who lives with him who doesn't speak any English but is a KGB agent. He operates under curfew. Uh, um, he's been used to seeing his friends, to going to the reform club. Uh, and it's a pretty prescribed sort of world. You know, he has his books, he, he, he's able to listen to music, and he has a few friends, people like Graham Greene, who come and see him. But it's a pretty sad life, and he's, he, he's got nothing to do except drink himself to death. He, he often pops up at places like the Bolshoi in the hope that he might meet Westerners who've gone to a, to a performance there. Um, but it's 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 not really you know the dream that he sort of thought about when he was recruited you know some twenty years thirty years earlier. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting watching that Canadian Broadcasting Corporation interview with him that materialised a few years ago because he he says there that he would like to return to England and I under I understand from you know from reading your book that. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. 
important to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. You know, that that's something he wanted to do, and the security services were worried that if he did return they wouldn't have enough to actually prosecute him and he'd be an even, even more of an embarrassment. Yeah, that's the irony. And I think he knew that. He knew that he'd be very careful not to implicate, uh, implicate himself. I mean, he claimed that he'd gone there as a, tour, as a tourist. Um, and um, they actually used Blunt to dissuade him from coming back. It's also suited Blunt's purposes because he didn't want him talking to anyone about what he'd been up to, um, to dissuade him. But he was very nostalgic um, for Britain uh, and he wanted to come and see his old mum. He, you know, he, he saw her, he was a sort of mummy's boy even at this stage. And, and this is one of the strange mysteries uh, about when he went, did he know uh, that he might co- never come back? Uh, one of the things I found very interesting is I, I went and interviewed the man who um, lived in his old house in Ascot. Uh, and he said that Burgess had appeared the day before he fled on a sort of nostalgic visit. He also went to his old school, Eton, and saw this, this teacher, Robert Burley. And that suggests that he realized that he was going away and wasn't, wouldn't come back for a long time. You know, there's some suggestion that he was told that he would just have to escort McLean to, to Bern or somewhere and then he would be allowed to come back, or that he would get to Moscow uh, and then after a short time he would be allowed to come back. So we just don't know. He never really said. Uh, he never he never regretted he, he, um, what, he, what he did. I mean, even though it was clear that he, he'd made a mistake of his life, but he never had any any public regrets. I mean, he just wanted to come back. Uh, and indeed, there were rumors at one point that he was coming back. And uh, the authorities basically put out that he would be arrested if he came back and they got a, a, an arrest warrant just to try and shake the cage and prevent him from doing so. Um, because the last thing they wanted was him spilling the beans on what had been going on. Yeah, yeah. So uh, when he dies in, in 1963, what sort of send-off is he given? Well, the interesting thing is he's not given much of a send-off in, in Russia at all. There's, there's hardly any attention in the papers. Um, but when it's discovered that he has died, it's a huge story in in, in the West. Huge, huge uh, articles, uh, and people clearly can talk about him. But there, you know, uh, I think a lot of Russians would not have even known he was there. He's now grown a bit like Philby. I mean, Philby got got there thinking that he would be treated as a hero, and he liked to pretend that he was, and he was a major general and got the order of the Red Banner and things. But actually, he was just treated as Agent Tom. And no one quite trusted him. And the, and the Russians, you know, if you've been an, a, a spy, they, they feel that you may not have given up your initial sympathies. Uh, and it was only in the 1970s with Philby that, that the Russian authorities realized, particularly KGB, that here was a useful propaganda tool. And here was a man with a great deal of knowledge and they should make something of him. Uh, and he was brought in as part of the training courses of the KGB. Um, but... Um, uh, Paul Burgess, you know, it was, you know, his boyfriend disappeared the next day. The flat was cleared. 
he didn't leave anything to McLean, but he left his clothes to Philby because Philby was the same size. And indeed, now in Philby's uh, um, wife's flat, you can still see um, some of uh, Burgess's books and some of uh, and a chair that he he used to use a, a lot. But he he became a sort of forgotten man there, really. Um, and he was a forgotten man here. Everyone wrote about the Cambridge spies, wrote about Philby and McLean. Because there'd be so little on Burgess. He died. He was the first to die. No one really had had much contact with him since 51. He hadn't left any letters. So it was quite difficult to piece the story together um, because there wasn't that much material until these files came up. And I began to identify these people who'd been at school with him in the Foreign Office who were prepared to talk about him. Yeah, yeah, and and I I think the one of the well one of the many interesting pieces in in, in the book, and there's loads more detail than what we've covered in our in our conversation today. But you you argue that Burgess was more influential than the rest of the Cambridge Five. Now, most people would probably consider that Philby was was potentially the the most influential there. But can you can you explain what you mean by? Burgess being the most influential. Yeah, I think, and this doesn't come from me. That's not. This is coming from people like Sergei Kondrashev, the KGB general who ran him in Moscow. And I think there are lots of reasons. One is that he was the first to to penetrate the intelligence services, and he worked for both MI5 and MI6. Uh, I think clearly his role when he worked for Hector McNeil as a special advisor was very important uh, after the war. But he also seems to have done very important work uh, when he was doing this black propaganda before the war. And I think even when he got to Moscow, um, he was important um, because he he was able to give them an understanding of how things worked. He was able to to, to give them the order of battle. Um, he was able to sort of blackmail them. Um, you know, we, 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 we sort of see these things in the number of operations betrayed or people killed. And often it's very difficult to, to establish any sort of audit about what people did. Uh, and that was what, you know, the Americans tried when McLean and, and um, Burgess went. But he brought out huge numbers of documents. Uh, he recruited a lot of people. He was involved in the Oxford ring. I think he was a great in- agent of influence, shaping policy, not just the BBC, but also when he was in the Far East Department. Uh, and, you know, I think also just the defection itself, the very public defection, was an embarrassment in a way that people perhaps got used to when Philby went. So there is a strong argument for saying that he was the most you know, effective. Um, you know, we just assume because he looked, uh, you know, pretty hopeless and dissolute that he wasn't effective, but he was. Um, I mean, I, I have a whole chapter at the end of the book where I, I make the case. And, you know, it's a big debate. You know, we now realize that John Cairncross was much more important than we realized um, because of his, his work at Bletchley and elsewhere. The debates will carry on. And now, of course, um, Agent Sonia is, is seen as, as being very effective because of her work with atomic weapons. So, you know, they, they all, they all had their, you know, their, 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 their position in, 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 in what they produced. Yeah. Now, earlier on, you, you mentioned that you managed to carry out interviews in the 1980s with, with people that, that knew Burgess. Who, can you just, Tell us about some of those interviews and and who you spoke to. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I spoke to, for example, Don McLean's brother and to uh, Guy's uh, brother Nigel, who'd also been in MI5. 
Uh, I talked to, I don't know, over 100 people who've been at school with him, in the Foreign Office with him at Cambridge. Uh, uh, I uh, talked to Gromi Reese's uh, sister-in-law, the woman called Mary Hardy, who'd been at a lot of parties in the 1940, early 1940s with him. I interviewed Clarissa Avon, the uh, wife of Anthony Eden and niece of Churchill, who had had an affair with Burgess and used to go to a lot of the parties with him. Uh, I... Um, Talk to people like Michael Strait, uh, a lot of the um, agent hunters, people like Arthur Martin, uh, and um, God, who else? Um, all sorts of, of, of people. Uh, people wrote out, you know, wrote people who'd seen him that last week. Uh, so I got details of that. I had access to his boyfriend, Jack Hewitt's diary. I went into, to Tangier and saw probably the most important person in uh, his life, a man called Peter Pollock, who he fell in love with in 1937 uh, and remained in touch with until until his defection. Indeed, he stayed in touch with them after he went to Russia. And Peter Pollock had all the love letters between them and was able to tell me about him and the circle. So there was an awful lot of, of, of new material just by that no one really had, had come across before. Um, so it, it was very exciting, actually, and one person would lead on to a, to, to another. Yeah, that that that's incredible, and that certainly shows itself in the in the richness of detail that that that's in in the book. You get a well, you certainly get a feel of the character of Burgess that I'd not read before in in other histories of the Cambridge Five. I think one of the problems also with intelligence books is that I mean people. And this is what I think, you know, why biography is a, is a very good way of doing it, because you can look at the psychology of, of treachery, is, you know, they're interested in what they did and what they betrayed and not why they did it and what made them tick. And also, a lot of them might feel we really had no hinterland beyond the spying, whereas Burgess had this wide range of friends, people like Graham Greene and Ian Forster and, 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 and others and um, Keynes. Um, so that gave a sort of, as you say, a richness to the book, which you wouldn't get with a straight spy. Um, and that's why I think biography is a very good way of looking at, the, at, at, at spying, because you do get the context in which they work and, and also the journey. Why, why, how is it they became spies? Is it... Uh, you know, was it some event in their life? I mean, Burgess always said that to, to betray, you, you betray when you don't belong. And he didn't feel he belonged. He felt he was an outsider. And that begin, you know, then you begin to understand what, what makes, you know, what makes the whole thing happen. But having all these people, and of course, there was that moment um, in the 1980s when the Russians were prepared to talk. I would never have got someone like Sergei Kondrashev otherwise. Uh, and, and indeed, one of the people that helped was one of the, his controllers, a man called Modin. I had some researchers in Russia who spoke to them several times uh, and gave lots of new information. Uh, and that just wouldn't be possible now. Um, so that, that, you know, I was very lucky because of the timing. Yeah. Yeah, you were. You were. Was there anything in the archives that you, you just sort of like almost fell off your chair when you when you you know when you read that? Um, yes, no, there were lots of things I found. Some <laughs> of the interviews that were done, uh, you know, after he fled, the fact that there were suspicions against people like Philby and Karen Cross very early on, uh, the confirmation of the affair with Esther Whitfield, uh, and also with Chris Eden, which I'd heard, but but. Um, you know, it was, it was difficult to stand up. Uh, I mean, finding the, the I'd, I'd been very 
um, upset to discover that all the letters between Burgess and his mother written uh, when he was in Moscow had been thrown into her, his grave and then discovered that, you know, good old MI5 had kept pot copies. So, you know, we <laughs> could see, you know, we could literally see day to day what he was doing in Moscow. So, yeah, no, it was, it was a very rich source, these 400 um, uh, files. And that's why, you know, it's so frustrating that more stuff can't be released because I suspect there's even more stuff there. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, files are fantastic. Um, you, you know, you've got to take them with a pinch of salt. But interviews with people who come back who'd seen him uh, and, and what, they, you know, what their experiences were, um, lot, lots of stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like there, there is potential for material for further, further books. I mean, you, you alluded to, you know, aspiring in, in Oxford, and it's always surprised me that Cambridge is the one that's always focused on and nothing appeared to happen in Oxford, but it sounds like there, there was, uh, some sort of intelligence network there. There was. We we know some of the people who were involved. I mean, the two Flood brothers, um, um, Jennifer Hart, and, and others. I think the problem, the, the the two things, the two theories about Oxford. One is that they were so successful that they've never been discovered, uh, and the other is that they were so useless that they would never anyone bothered about them. Uh, so you pick you pick your side. I think one of the problems is a lot of people just went off and did other things. You know, they went into academia or they. Um, uh, Cambridge, I think, just has this maybe holier now rather religious fanaticism. Uh, there's a sort of Puritan aspect there, whereas Oxford perhaps is more cosmopolitan and worldly. And um, it just it hooked. It was more Cromwellian against the you know more against the sort of roundheads, and and it just and took its hold there. And that's because the thing is they recruited their friends. And once, you know, Philby is the key there, I do agree. Once he recruited those people, they all knew each other and they recruited their own friends. And there was never that um, that sort of link with Oxford. So it was a little bit here and there. But, you know, there, there, there are arguments that the um, that there was in some ways an earlier recruitment uh, in Oxford and Cambridge going back to the end of the First World War. There's a man called Rajani Palmdat in Oxford. Uh, and clearly those people recruited in the 30s must have recruited other people. So there's probably a second wave of people, perhaps, you know, who were there in the 1950s who we just don't know about. Um, uh, and maybe the intelligence services don't know about. Uh, so, you know, these mysteries still remain. It's still, you know, the Cambridge Five is not going to go away, I think, as, as, as good bo box office material. And, of course, we have a new film coming out on that, on Philby, um, with, um, uh, with, with Dominic West, Benedict Cumberbatch and others. I forgot what it's called. It's based on, on, um, Ben McIntyre's book, uh, on Philby. But, oh, okay. you know, who knows, you know, how they will, how they will spin it. Um, and in fact, um, my book uh, on Burgess has been optioned for film and is with, I better not say who, but quite a well-known scriptwriter at the moment. So there's quite a good good chance that his that his story, I think, will finally be, be shown on the big screen. Not not the, 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 the bit in Moscow, which has been done, but I think possibly the bit when he's in the States and when he's really cracking up and when he flees. And I think the plans for a film on um, Melinda, who's really one of those fascinating characters, uh, Donald's wife, who, who clearly knew more than she let on, and who only died a few years ago, uh, taking her secret to the grave. Wow. Wow, sounds like some really good, really good films coming up. Are there any other Cold War projects you're working on? You mentioned a biography of Lord Mountbatten. 
Well, I did a book on Lord Mountbatten, which came out last year, called The Mountbatten's Their Lives and Loves. And that's the story of this very unusual open marriage that Dickie and Edwina Mountbatten had, uh, where they both had lots of affairs, but but actually, you know, were very close. And it's the story of their public and private partnership, um, because he they clearly worked very close together when he was viceroy of India and various other jobs. Um, so it's it's that mixture of the private story uh, and 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 the sort of public events. I mean, he was extraordinary. I mean, he was the Supreme Allied Commander in Southeast Asia. He eventually ended up as Chief of Defence Staff, and she was this great humanitarian figure working to save the children and St John Ambulance. And it's you know it's very much sort of Crown territory. In fact, you know they both pop up in the various episodes. So that came out. I'm now working on a book on the Duke of Windsor. But after the abdication of 1936, everything's normally focused on on him giving up the throne. But what we don't know, uh, don't realize, is he, you know he lived for another almost 40 years afterwards and got involved with with Hitler and was rather pro-Nazi. He got involved with currency transactions that he shouldn't have done. Uh, he uh, was involved when he was governor of the Bahamas with covering up a murder. So there's a lot of juicy scandal about him, which which we haven't really, I think, got the, the full picture on. And I'm hoping to deliver that uh, in a few months' time, and then I'm open to suggestions. But I, I would like to get back to, to a Cold War story, if we can find a strong enough story with the material. Well, let, let's hope they open a few more a few more files up, Andrew. Well, let's hope so. I pray every night. You've been listening to Andrew Lowney, the author of Stalin's Englishman, Guy Burgess, The Cold War and the Cambridge Spy Ring. I'm sure you are intrigued by Guy Burgess now. There will be links in the show notes as to where you can buy the book. And we have further information such as videos and links in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. These are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Frederick Esposito, Jeffrey Jones and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Thanks for listening right through to the end. I really appreciate it. And maybe check out our store and 
see if you can find the ideal gift for the Cold War enthusiast in your life. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash store. Thanks for listening. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.